0: Hey, what is going on everybody and welcome to Listen Money Matters. The trick is to stop thinking of it as your money. <laughs> my name is Thomas and I'm here as always with my good friend Andrew. Andrew, how are you and what are you drinking this? Dude, I was about to say morning, but it's not morning.
1: It's late. We, we both pushed it back. We,
0: like, Well, um, I, was, I was doing a little research, a little last minute YouTubing, mm, so
1: it'll be um, worth it. I'm drinking a Harvey's. Town, I'm mean, kind of Ola Dubba. It's an ale that uh, was aged in whiskey casts. It's an 18 reserve, fancy, and it like it's signed by like the head brewer, the master of wood, Ooh. whatever that is. Sounds important, <laughs> and it tastes very important.
0: <laughs> I was up in Breck with Matt and uh, Nathaniel Boyle, and we went to the liquor store, and they got some fancy beers. And I swear they're like they were like being beer psalms, basically. Mm. Like smelling the beer and swishing it around and doing everything. And apparently with craft beer, there's like this chance that any bottle could be infected because they don't filter it or they don't do something that makes it more consistent. Apparently it makes it more hipster. But Mm. they just were putting glasses (laughs) on the table with the stuff that comes out of the bottom. It looked like freaking milk, basically. Wow. And I, I felt like a little bit of a pleb. Because I don't know, I still like just a, a light crisp lager, Mm. but I just have OJ some good, delicious, simple orange juice because, uh, kind of stopped doing the, the day drinking thing, even for this podcast. I Mm -hmm. think I only ever did it for this podcast, but it just, I don't know, trying to drink a lot less now.
1: I get more productive. Yeah. The day after. I drink and record. Wait, I think it's I think you're it's more the productive beer. the day after. Yeah, because it's the beer when we record. It just takes a little bit of time.
0: How do you feel when you're drinking?
1: Great. So that's the thing. So I, and I don't know like all the science
0: behind this, but I watched this uh, Jordan Peterson video a while ago, and I think it was called like How to Tell If You're at Risk of Being an Alcoholic, mm-hmm. and he and his team at the university he works for had done some research and they had identified a specific factor in men. Um, And they were like, this isn't the only factor that could predict a potential pattern of alcoholism. But if you are a guy and while your blood alcohol content is going up, meaning while you're drinking, you feel really energetic then Mm -hmm. that's like a potential problem sign. And Mm -hmm. I was like, that is actually very accurate for me. When I drink, I don't get all mellow. I don't get all relaxed. I get really energetic. And I usually want to like clean the house and stuff. So I was like, that's probably a not a good sign. So,
1: right now, Thomas, you are seeing me at my most physically active. <laughs> I
0: think you're seeing me at my least physically active. I'm sitting on my I got butt up in a from desk. the other
1: room and I came into this one.
0: <laughs> that is not good enough, my friend. Anyway, all right. So we're getting into one of those um, kind of intimidating topics today, I think, because we are going to attempt to explain the national debt uh, and how, to how clarify that
1: and not not be political about. Yes.
0: To clarify that, I'm sure that we have a sizable international listener base. Um, we're going to be explaining mostly the U.S. national debt because, of course, we are U.S. based people.
1: And most of there, the same concepts apply. Most
0: of the same concepts apply, but there are definitely going to be differences between how our country works and how other countries work. For example, mm-hmm. um, we have a relationship with the Federal Reserve that a lot of countries don't have. Um, there are things like Japan will issue negative interest bonds in certain cases. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely... Switzerland
1: has a similar thing yeah. for bank deposits. and.
0: There's definitely um, differences out there, but... I think, you know, a lot of people want to know, like, what is the national debt? Why does it always get talked about so much? You know, and there's a lot of concerns, like, is China going to bring down our economy because they own all of our debt? All that kind of stuff.
1: So if you make it through this episode and it is like heavily researched and I think that we have close to the same views, although we try to not go to, you know, deep on it before we record. like views um, like political yeah, I mean, views I don't know or how like what? in general, like um, how you feel about certain aspects of, but we'll, we'll get there. I still, I guess, honestly,
0: I still feel so ignorant. Like I know how it works now, but I still feel- I spent like
1: three days in a <laughs> hole on the internet.
0: Maybe you know more than, you probably, uh, hopefully three days in the hole of the internet, you know more than me. But I will say like, From, I've, I've kind of come to understand some of the mechanics, but I'm still at the point where I'm like, I don't know how this affects overall macroeconomic trends and like, if any sort of proposed changes to how we handle it would be good or bad, I don't know.
1: Hmm. Um, what I will, okay, so yeah, well, you know let's just jump into it. Okay. And you want to you know what we think?
0: Listen. Yeah, listen up. <laughs> okay, so, so what exactly is the national debt and who do we owe so, this debt to?
1: Yes. So uh, in order to understand the national debt, you need to understand uh, the revenue and deficit of the United States so or, or any country for that matter. We're talking about the U.S. So the U.S. takes in a certain amount of revenue from taxes, payroll, corporations, I don't know, uh, visa applications, whatever. They take in a bunch of money and then they spend a bunch of money and if they take in more than they make, we have a surplus and they take in, I'm sorry, if they take in more than we spend, we have a surplus and we take in less than we spend, we have a deficit and the national debt is essentially the sum of our deficits, yep. where uh, potentially including interest. Yeah,
0: well, it does include interest. Mm. And as far as I know, we basically always run a deficit. Right? So we
1: haven't always run a deficit. Okay. Um, when when Clinton was president, um, we were doing really great at uh, surplus and paying stuff mm. down. But be- before we even get deep into this, and a lot of people are like, well, you know, Reagan did this and Obama did this, fun fact the presidents suggest the budget in yeah. terms of spending and they suggest you know potential tax rules they actually have no say and they legally have to do whatever Congress decides they're the deciders So when you're like Obama did this Bush did this no it act- they just executed on whatever Congress, demanded them to execute on. So yeah. it's a misnomer to, to attribute it to the president. Did you watch the CGP
0: gray video on the debt ceiling at all? Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, Oh my gosh. So it's so, all Congress's it. fault. Basically.
1: <laughs> but that, that's essentially what he described is yeah. this whole debt ceiling thing is just like, uh, it seems just like, nucle-
0: yeah, like a problem that they can say they solved. So I guess mm. basically people don't know what the debt ceiling is. So like Congress, um, they will like approve the budget and they can change it however they want. So the president suggests the budget and what they're going to spend to spend things. Congress on. could ignore they them. They could totally we'll ignore their suggestions. It. They could take whatever. the suggestions. They could go play with it, whatever they want, but they're the ones that are going to pass it. And then the president's job is to also collect the taxes, but also Congress mm-hmm. decides how, what we're going to tax people on. So mm. at the end of the day,
1: and Congress determines the, the debt ceiling.
0: So I'm going to, I'm going to explain the debt ceiling in a second, but at the end of the day, the basics here are that Congress chooses how much money we're going to take in legally Mm. and they choose how much money we're going to spend legally. And it is the president's obligation to carry out those orders. And then Congress also uh, will impose what they call a debt ceiling, where this is like a limit to how much debt we can have. And Mm. basically what this does is they can now say like, Oh, the president wants to spend more money and take on more debt than we have allowed them to take on and we're gonna hit the debt ceiling that, and meanwhile that's we're gonna go in the untrue. And it's literally just an arbitrary number set by Congress. So apparently they can mm-hmm. just, after a bunch of deliberation and uh, congressional theater, can raise the debt ceiling to say, oh, we raised it. We have we've and backed away from hard again.
1: <laughs> the reason it's dumb is because they approve a budget that yep. either will or won't go over the debt ceiling so the, so they've decided this number. And then when we go and hit the debt ceiling, they're like, oh, my God, I'm shocked, shocked <laughs> that, that we hit the debt ceiling. Meanwhile, they're the, 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 the ones video. who decided that. So yeah. kind of ridiculous. It seems like but,
0: literally other than maybe some like back channel influence the president may have, the president is like in this context, a literal puppet.
1: Mm, yes. So um, so we have uh, that's that's what the national debt is. Um, and to kind of compare this, uh, to consumer spending, you know, if you had student loans or if you have a mortgage or if you put money on your credit card, the debt, the debt is similar yeah. in that sense. And so I think, uh, and as we go through the episode, we'll do very similar comparisons, to how we would, if it was your personal finances. And these are general uh, measurements that economists use and and stuff like that.
0: Right, yeah. Uh, Okay, so I guess let's just like break down how much debt does our country have and who do we owe it to?
1: Yeah. So right now, Uh, and you can
0: look at this, there's a website called Mm usdebtclock.org. And what'd you say was like $20.6 trillion right now, I think?
1: At the moment of recording, yep. it's like twenty point six oh six ish.
0: There's a lot of numbers trillion. on this thing, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, you could just just trying to understand what is going on in all these things, but that that's how much debt the U.S. has at this moment: twenty point six trillion dollars, yep. a very large number. And then often when you hear this number, it is put hand in hand with um, a debt to GDP ratio. Okay. And so the GDP is the gross domestic product or what is produced by the country. Yeah. And right now that's about like uh, $19.6 trillion. And so our debt to GDP ratio is about 104%. And the reason this is important is because the US could borrow, you know, a trillion dollars. And Portugal could borrow a trillion dollars. And I think it's fair to assume that the, the bigger country that earns more money would have a better, easier time paying it off. Yeah. Um And so that's why that ratio is, is used all over the place.
0: Now, one question is, th- the GDP is an annual thing, right?
1: Right, so it's like, essentially measuring the productivity of what, yeah.
0: the, you know. But the debt is like a total. It's not like we racked up right. 20 trillion in one year. It's it's currently $20 trillion.
1: over Over many, many years. Yeah, and
0: now, I don't understand hmm. how useful that metric is. I mean, maybe you can explain it to me, but it's my understanding that like we, we basically don't, like we pay off individual debts. We have to, hmm. but we never pay off the debt because well, as we'll see later, we often finance paying the debt with new debt.
1: So when we're talking about uh, getting out of student loan debt or, or you know credit card debt, uh, we tend to really focus on one number, um, the interest rate that you pay. And so if you have credit card debt and it's 20-something percent, we're like, well, step one is to refinance that to a lower rate because it dramatically reduces the cost, yeah. any amount of interest you would pay. And um, interestingly, over time, if you look at the, the graph of US debt, it is, looks like it's like exponentially increasing. But also during the same time period, the actual interest rate or cost of that debt has been steadily decreasing. And the amount that we actually have to pay to service that debt or meet our obligations has also been decreasing. So it's been decreasing? Yeah. There, there was a point uh, the US uh, used to pay 14% on its debt. For, oh,
0: 14% interest?
1: Yeah. Okay. And right now, so in December of 2017, and I'm saying that, I like our episodes to be timeless, but you know, there's a very specific number. Yeah. The average treasury bill interest rate was 1.248%. In the same month, if you were to get a home mortgage, you on average would get 4.205%. So the US government is borrowing... Uh, uh, of a rate, 25% of what you would for a mortgage, which is a pretty damn low rate. Now
0: is that, is that rate that the treasury bonds are set at, is that somehow correlated with things like mortgage interest rates or is there some other, I know there was like a, there's like a rate that the Mm. fed sets for banks. And Mm. I don't know if that's at all related to the way the treasury bonds are structured or not.
1: So I think in the past, it was, so it, everything is correlated for sure. And in the past, it was much, much, much more correlated. Now it is much less because we're a very global economy okay. or just the world is very globalized and it more reflects demand. And gotcha. so the more people want treasuries, the the further down it drives uh, the interest rate. And so if you mm. think about if there were problems happening across the world, like Greece defaulting, whatever, people tend to find shelter in uh, US Treasury bills. Yeah. And so, as more people find shelter there, it just drives the rate down. Gotcha, okay. So, And of course, the opposite could happen if people were afraid of the US defaulting, they could leave yeah. and the rate could dramatically increase.
0: Okay, so let's break down like where the debt is broken up and like who, Hold to that debt essentially because I think that's going to be a pretty helpful thing in explaining some of the later concepts And I watched a few videos that uh, broke this down now keep in mind the video I watched was from august 2016 So people out there who are really detail oriented Maybe these percentages have shifted a tiny little bit since then, but I think it's going to be Overall pretty accurate
1: that was the hardest part with this, is that <laughs> finding the numbers like, are always changing and so everything's kind of always out of date Yeah,
0: deal. but I really don't think like, oh, China just within one year just took on an extra extra ten percent of our debt. Like that probably mm. didn't happen. So
1: as we've actually been reducing.
0: Yeah. As of August 2016, uh thirty three percent of our national debt, which is about six trillion dollars, was held by other nations. Mm. And it's not like China holds most of that. They held like five percent of our debt. I think it was one point two trillion. And right. then Japan so, held a very similar but smaller number, and then after that, it was like yeah. the Cayman Islands. Weirdly, held the next like the third largest, but it was like two hundred eighty <laughs> billion. And I'm guessing it's because it's a, a lot haven. of like it's a tax haven, and there's a bunch of money just <laughs> routed through there.
1: <laughs> That's where all the billionaires <laughs> a have of, their money. A bunch of shady stuff happens
0: <laughs> there. But yeah, so basically, uh, about a third of our debt is held by other nations. Twenty nine percent of our debt is what they call like intragovernmental debt which basically happens when one department will loan money out of its budget to the federal government by buying a treasury bond. So that way the federal government can give that money to another department. And this happens because first of all, when the budget is set, there's an amount of money allocated to each department in the government. So the department of energy gets a bunch of money to do whatever it is they do. Even the commissioner of the Department of Energy doesn't know what they do, apparently. (laughs) And the Department of the Interior gets a bunch of money. The Department of the National Parks gets bus money. Everyone gets money. And then everyone's got a spending plan. And often what happens is there's a discrepancy between the amount of money they have and the amount of money that they are going to spend for their legally obligated plan. Sometimes they get more than they need. Sometimes they get less. Now, you'd think that, if you, like if you had a budget at home, and you planned it like at the beginning of the month, and you're like, I'm gonna spend $500 on groceries, I'm gonna spend $200 on coffee, and I'm gonna spend $1,800 on a sushi lounge.
1: Military expenses.
0: Military, ex- or something, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna go to the military surplus store and buy myself some bear traps because I need them for reasons. And mm. then you realize that you only need one bear trap actually, and they had a sale down at the military surplus store, so you have all this extra money, but it turns out Sushi Den just raised their prices, and you're not going to eat less sushi than you normally do. That's just not going to happen. Well, what you would do is you would just say, okay, I will take $500 that I was going to spend on Bear Traps, the military surplus store, and I'm just going to put that into my Sushi Den, or Sushi Lounge budget, and I'm going to buy lots more mackerel. That's fine. Mm. But the U.S. government can't just transfer money from one area to another. They would have to literally vote on it. The Congress would have to vote on that every single time. And Congress does things pretty slowly. So instead what they do is if a department has more money than they need, they will purchase treasury bonds, thereby creating debt and they'll be giving that money to the treasury. And then the treasury can then allocate that money to a department that has more on their spending plan than they need and because this happens all the time and because debt gets paid off very slowly and as we will see more debt is created at a faster rate 29 percent of our national debt is that intergovernmental debt so basically like a third of our debt the government owes to itself
1: because it's shifting money around yeah. but the, the total amount is the same granted spending well there's interest every more. single time
0: so it's not right. like
1: but the interest is being paid to the government's paying interest to itself. Yeah. In this case, but it's still so, it
0: still like creates a larger balance on the overall ledger, essentially.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: So that's that accounts um, for about two thirds. Um and then there's like I forget what the smaller parts are, but there's thirteen percent is owed to the Federal Reserve, which makes the Federal Reserve the largest single debt holder. Um out of any, anybody, including foreign nations. Mm. Now this is where something called debt monetization comes in. And this is why I really wanted, and I felt that we needed to talk a little bit about the creation of money because it is intrinsically linked to the national debt. And we could have a whole, have we done an episode of money creation?
1: No, it's on our list. Oh, it's on our list. And okay. Yeah, I couldn't remember so if I th- we I think that. Happen this okay. Year. So
0: we will go deeper into this within our money creation episode, but uh, in a nutshell, if the U.S. government needs money, what they can do is issue a treasury bond in a way to the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve has the authority to print money, so they can simply print up more money, thereby increasing the overall money supply. Send that money to the U.S. Treasury, and now they are otherwise described
1: of debt. as inflation.
0: Yeah, so that that causes inflation because they have now made new money. They've introduced new money into the U.S. money supply and now they hold the debt. So basically that the debt is the justification for the creation of money in that way. Now mm-hmm. there's another way that cre- the money is created called the fractional reserve banking system which we will go all into in that future episode. Yes. But this is one of the main ways that money is created. Now there is one mm-hmm. important thing here. Uh, oh, right now oh, yeah. I don't think the U.S. government is literally allowed to sell treasury bonds directly to the Fed but yeah. they can sell them to people like institutional investors to you and me, all kinds of stuff like that. And then the fed can buy them from us. So it essentially works the same way. It's just, there's a bit of a middleman.
1: One hand washes the other. Yeah.
0: It just like um, maintains the illusion that the government doesn't have a direct link to the money printing machine, but they sort right. of do because the market what, is going to work out anyway.
1: If to, to go back to some of the numbers, In the beginning, I had said that uh, in December of 2017, the the average interest rate because it's changing daily, hourly, whatever. The average interest rate for Treasury bills in December of 2017 was 1.248 percent. And now you just described essentially how we uh, create money to handle obligations, Mm -hmm. and this often manifests through inflation. And inflation is like the the decreasing of today's dollar value. Yeah. Or, or you know, and that it decreases buying out, value
0: because right. you know as the money supply goes up, then the value so of an individual dollar goes down.
1: If you had a hundred dollars and inflation was two percent, that that like a, essentially means that you have ninety eight dollars left. I mean, yeah, roughly. The math is not so sexy, <laughs> but um, and so so the the interest rate was one point two four eight percent on the debt, but inflation in that same month. On average, was two point one percent. So we actually technically profited on the money we borrowed in December of twenty seventeen because the the money lost value faster than we than the rate that we had to pay interest. Wait,
0: can you explain it to me once more? Is the rate of inflation was like two percent.
1: So think of it like this: if you had an investment and it, and it earned you two percent a year, right? Right, and inflation was two percent a year. You would be making zero. Yeah, your increase in va- right?
0: and buying value or buying power is zero, even though your right. Your so number in this scenario,
1: the 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 debt. So so before we were saying investment is like a positive number, and then uh, you know, um, inflation is a negative number for savings and investments, but if it's debt, it's reverse. So interest okay. rate is negative because you pay, but inflation is positive because it reduces the cost of your debt or the, or the value of your debt. It devalues it.
0: So the, the so rate of interest that we're issuing, the government is issuing is less than, inflation. Is less than the rate of inflation. So basically the hmm. buying power of the dollars we're creating is, you well, know, the buying power is going down, Right. Mm-hmm. So does that mean
1: think of it like this. Here. So infl sorry, inflation is um great for debtors, people yes. who have debt because it reduces the value of the debt and it's terrible for savers because mm-hmm. it reduces the value of the savings. Like every dollar is reduced.
0: Okay, so to pay back the Fed, it's easier so the, because the rate of inflation right, so is their higher. So re-
1: interest rate is lower than inflation. Yeah. So the 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 net rate is is positive right and this is just one mm. month out of many months but it shows an interesting relationship between inflation and the cost of our debt and this is why mm. one of the main reasons why we've been able to drive this debt number up to astronomical levels and it really not have a meaningful meaningful impact on like the cost of running our government
0: yeah so i guess like the question is are we ever going to pay that off And if we don't, like, what happens?
1: So right now, everything's great. You know, the debt has never been cheaper, um, and it's also never been higher. And everyone loves U.S. Treasuries, so it's all good. We can keep acquiring more debt. However, so people
0: basically people uh, don't care that our debt is rising.
1: Right right, now, they trust the dollar enough.
0: They like to trust it anyway, and they're buying them anyway. They
1: they trust us. So like the U.S. is the safest investment. Totally. Let's do it. And so I guess the question happens,
0: is, why do they trust us since the debt is continually going up? Is it because well, we're like the most powerful? We have a big military. Is it because like our GDP is so high?
1: So, so okay. So I want to talk about this and, and I want to talk about it in one second. Um, but you had the, this other question, um, like what happens? And mm-hmm. uh, it tends to happen like, Extremely quickly, where someone loses faith in the ability for an entity to pay and pulls out, and it creates this wave, and this is how like crashes happen, and, and then this everyone is exactly goes play, ha- right? Right. This is what this is what happened to Lehman Brothers. This is what happened to Bear Stearns. This is what happened to Greece, Portugal, and Spain. Like runs on right? the bank essentially. A- Yes. It it, it wasn't like one day Greece just fell to shit. No, it was was essentially one day investors had a consensus based on what movements of money were happening that Greece can't pay. And as a result of everyone leaving, the cost of the debt went up and they couldn't pay.
0: So would it be like analogous to a margin call?
1: Yes. Where it's just
0: like, hey, we actually want the money you owe us now.
1: Because right now, interestingly, um, so, so the U.S. government takes in about $3.6 trillion. In 2017, they took in $3.6 trillion. And the cost to pay our debt was only $303 billion. Wait, That's $303 only billion? About, yeah. So that was only 8% of the total money the government took in that year was used towards debt. That's a shockingly wow. low amount. Like It's because our debt is basically free now. Yeah. But if you tripled- the the interest rate that would essentially triple our cost and then we'd be talking about like a quarter of our debt or a quarter of our income going towards our debt so mm-hmm. that that relationship is is a very tight one um now
0: even though we have so little money going to our debt obligations are we still running a deficit I'm sorry I said again even though we, we have so little money going to our debt obligations which you'd think would would Uh, free up a lot of money for the spending we're going to do in the year. Are we still running a deficit?
1: Yeah. And so basically um, we're paying
0: off our obligations and we have a very small amount that needs to go to it, but we're still racking up more than we're paying.
1: And we're, we're borrowing at an ever faster rate and I I don't want to get into it because it's like (laughs) super political and we will probably have an episode dedicated to this when we can do it in such a nonpartisan way. But tax reform is inflaming what is not an issue now but could be an issue in the future because
0: they're going to take in less tax money aren't they
1: because they're basically like cutting
0: taxes on i don't see that's another thing i want to explain to me because all these people on twitter are like my taxes are going to go up or something and then i've looked at like the ny times like will your taxes go up or down thing and i put in so mm -hmm. many different variables and like every variable even like middle class like like moderate middle-class variables, it was like, you're still going to, you're going to get like a thousand dollars off your taxes.
1: Okay, dude. So check this out. Um, and by the way, and and all these resources, an enormous amount of links and videos are all going to be in the show notes. If you check the show notes in the past, it'll it'll won't even hold a candle to what (laughs) we're doing now. But there was, there was one graph that I found so ridiculously compelling, Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's actually the last one in, in our notes that we're sharing. Just this one so, with like
0: the stable So do I, don't, don't looking Don't say anything line.
1: yet. Uh, so, so this graph, to kind of describe it, it has on the bottom axis from 1950 to 2014, right? So over time. And then on the left axis, the Y axis, uh, it has zero to 100%. Right. And this is the amount of... Uh, revenue that the federal government has taken in, as compared to GDP, as a percentage of GDP,
0: federal receipts and, as a percentage of GDP,
1: right? So, so the like, is that being tax revenue, um, yes. Okay. So you, so you would assume that if you increased taxes, we would like the government would take in more money as a percentage of GDP. Yet this is the most boring, pedestrian graph you may ever see because it yeah. is literally a straight line left to right. Regardless of tax increases, tax decreases, capital gains changes, presidents, wars, whatever, the federal government has taken in consistently 17% um, of receipts for taxes as compared to GDP. So there is is definitely an argument that tax reform doesn't matter. Like It really doesn't Mm -hmm. matter because uh, what happens is – Um, maybe when we're taxed less, the economy grows faster. So there's a bigger pie to tax, but, you know, as a percentage essentially is the same.
0: Interesting. Though, I guess like the percentage does from the federal government's perspective, the percentage matters less than the actual dollars they get. Right. Mm. So, yeah, I guess I don't understand like how that is going to be a huge factor Like it's percent, it's percentage of VP, but like the GDP could go way up in a certain year and they're still going to take in near 17%. Right.
1: Right. And so it begs the argument that maybe tax reduction. So, and I'm not going to, I actually don't really believe in the tax reform that just happened Mm -hmm. because I don't think that I need more money. Um, That said, uh, this does lend some credence to the fact that uh, if more money is given back to people, perhaps it grows the economy at a commiserable rate mm. to to equate for that seventeen percent. So tax receipts go down, but the economy grows. That
0: could be a whole episode. I remember reading in a, a book that I'm I'm currently finishing up. Uh, it's called How to Not Be Wrong. The first chapter is all about like the Laffer Curve. Because some people will be like, "Oh, if you raise taxes, then you actually get um, you know higher government revenue or lower de- government revenue. And the, and the rhetoric they use is basically like you know, they don't come out and say it, but like if you think about it logically, it's a linear graph that they're arguing for, yeah. where like if you if you raise it, it just like and keep raising it, it just keeps going up and up, which is obviously impossible. In reality, it's more like a parabola where if you had taxes of zero, clearly the government would take in zero. If you had taxes of 100%, mm. the government would take in zero because no one would work. They would all die from having no right. money. So clearly there's like some middle or I guess logically at least, there's some uh, logical, theoretical, optimal. optimal area where, you know, and maybe it's not 50%. It's It's somewhere where maybe 40%, maybe 60%, you'll take in the max number of actual dollars because taxes will be low enough that people will be incentivized to work and innovate and all that kind of stuff, but they're high enough that you are actually reaping the benefits of that. But I don't think, I don't think that the current tax reform is really going to do that.
1: It it is not geared to that. It, it, I mean, I I actually don't even want to, I don't even want (laughs) to get into it. I don't even want to say what I think. Okay. Um, so, uh, one thing, uh, that, so I, 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 Watch all these tons of videos, read, read all these articles about what people had to say. And uh, I was so, so lucky to find one with Warren Buffett. He was in like some audience panel thing and they were just asking him questions. Someone asked about the debt and it was fairly recently. Um, and he's completely unconcerned with the national debt. I am also completely unconcerned as of now. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to make mindful changes and improvements in the future, but I think it's fine. He said, uh, and remember, this man is like super old at this point. Yeah. Uh, a dollar from 1930 is worth about six cents today. So in Warren Buffett's lifetime, the, the dollar is depreciated about 94%. So another way of saying
0: that is what you could buy today with a dollar back in 1930, you could buy the same thing with six cents?
1: No. That means if you had a dollar in 1930 and a pack of gum was worth a dollar and... Today, you'd only have six cents, so you wouldn't be able to buy that pack of Wait, gum. the
0: Wait, the, the buying power is decreasing, so a dollar back then is worth six cents today?
1: Yes, so okay. so the buying power is decreasing, so if you okay. had a bunch of savings, yeah. if you were Warren Buffett, you had a billion dollars, uh, it would be worth 94% less, Okay, it, given no growth, right, gotcha. and just the the inflation. Um. However, in the same time period, in real terms, so so like adjusted a dollar adjusted dollar adjusted value, mm-hmm. um, the GDP gross domestic product per capita has gone up six to one, and because because our productivity has gone up, right? Right, because because of our productivity and all these innovations. You know, used to I thought I was reading this interesting article. Is like back in like I think it was like 1960 or whenever they came out with. Uh, GPS, it costs like Mm $250,000. Now, GPS is essentially free. So over that time period, you gained $250,000 of value and it's in your pocket. Okay. So um, the, the point being is that you look at this $20 trillion amount, which is a very large amount, but based on the rate that we have been able to grow productivity and this country, so on and so forth um relatively speaking it is not concerning
0: so what is the metric i mean obviously like the debt number could go up up and up and up like freaking cookie clicker and it could get mm. to 70 trillion or you know 90 decillion or whatever and as long as people's trust in our government and our nation to be able to honor that debt at some point remains then it shouldn't matter how high that number gets All other variables being equal. Now, one obvious variable in my mind that could get out of whack potentially is the rate of inflation due to the way that we pay off the older debts by creating money, um, which creates new debt. So Mm -hmm. you could have a horrible inflation problem and a lot of people worry about hyperinflation with that kind of scenario. But so what you're saying is like, because of our productivity gains and increases, does that somehow keep that in check? That keep the inflation from becoming a huge issue.
1: So, okay, interestingly, uh, the so so maybe I, I don't even know if the, if I could like uh, fully with confidence answer that. I think I guess the real question more. is like,
0: do we require a constant rate of acceleration in our country's productivity in order yes. to maintain the trust that people have in our ability to pay off our debt? And in order to maintain the whole Warren Buffett not being concerned about our national debt issue, like were productivity well, to stagnate for long enough, would the national debt start to become an issue?
1: And, and so I wish I could take credit for like this thing, but he, essentially a very similar question was asked. And um, he said, this is the marvel of market economics the the free market in the United States is is the marvel of the, or you know now globally the, mar, the the marvel of the world there are so many people who are listening to this right now who have ideas on how to solve certain problems to help people in the future maybe it's a, a sippy cup for babies that doesn't spill or it is something related to autonomous cars or who knows and the system that we've built to enable you to monetize that. Uh, Is just incredible. And everyone is driven by those incentives. Um,
0: That's true. But so the one thing I worry about is I've heard a lot about how the quality of life increases brought about by technological innovations um, has been slowing down. Like, you know, early 20th century, we get things like penicillin that allow us to, you know, actually blow the population up and we get central heating and we get electricity and we get cars and like things that make huge like refrigeration technology that has democratized we get huge quality of life increases due to stuff like that and then we got the internet which is obviously a huge thing but now um you know substantially i guess the question is like the next- in the last like 20 years how much has your quality of life really increased like 2000 or 1998 to today? Like, I guess you have, you have smartphones, you have Uber, like there's definitely cool stuff to measure. It's not, you know, it's not keeping your food cold.
1: Look, I think the best way to measure this is what you can purchase or acquire with the resources that you have. Right. And it has been constantly up and to the right. Yeah. And I think that, um, Right now, with machine learning, which is the the dumbest tier when put in comparison to like singularity, the the finality of AI, you know, or or things like autonomous cars, like cutting the cost of transportation to a minuscule of what it is now. I think like um, those and the productivity gains from that. Uh, will be, it will be exponential.
0: Okay. So, so basically like it, you are a technological optimist who believes that the things yeah. coming on the horizon will continue to keep our quality of life and our purchasing habits and our productivity up and to the right, which in turn sustains the flywheel of, um, the debt being able to maintain itself and the trust in the debt being able to remain high.
1: We, we are moving on such a path. Um, where, you know, here we are, we're a show about money and money is increasingly becoming less and less relevant and your currency is actually knowledge. And so now- Explain that assertion. Um, so, uh, companies often like Google will often acquire company you know other companies will pay millions and millions of dollars to acquire talent that is incredibly knowledgeable in specific areas and the amount that you make you know a data engineer uh back when I was a data engineer my total comp was between 180 and 210 a year yeah. based on just this like super niche knowledge that I had whereas someone who may like collectively, no more facts than me, but it could be about something that, uh, you know, maybe it's assembling a car the, and the knowledge around that is just not as valuable. And so, well,
0: I agree with that, but that and the market that, plays, out. I don't see how that's an argument for money being less important than it used to be. I just see that as an argument for how the economy is changing and the skill sets people need to bring in the money is changing because no longer are. Your ability—no longer are physical skills and physical labor quite as important as they used to be. It is now the good knowledge of how to interact with complex systems, right?
1: The goods and services—I guess what what I mean is the good goods and services that you purchase are forever trending downwards in in terms of cost. Okay, and and the and the value that you get, even though the dollar is decreasing in value, the value they get per dollar is increasing, and so
0: because we're able to buy higher and higher tech. For less and less money every year because the cost of building it goes down because of improvements in manufacturing and all sorts right, of stuff. Right, And
1: so to, to play to the prior episode that we did like a few weeks ago, um, right now if you were to take an Uber from my parents' house to the New York City, it's about like a 40-minute drive. Right. And it would cost very close to $100 to, to take that, to take an Uber to do that. From
0: your parents' house?
1: Yeah, not, like Central your, Jersey. Oh,
0: okay. So they're, okay.
1: To to New York City, yeah. it would cost about like a hundred dollars. It's like a forty minute drive. They're speculating that when self driving cars reach whatever point, you know, the, the tipping point, it'll cost about the cup. It'll cost about a cup of coffee, you know, dollars like really? and change. And so the the order of magnitude is that because, because they they're going to be electric
0: dri- cars too. Because I mean, it would take more than a gallon of gas to get you there.
1: No like a, a corporation is going to own a high, like Tesla has very like almost no moving parts. Yeah, that's true. Whereas like you look at a Toyota Camry, it has like, I don't know, like thousands and thousands of moving parts. And so,
0: so you remove just, the person and this is all independent of the, um, the economic mm, factors of a uh, job loss look, in this we're, area, we're like, but
1: we're not even in the weeds. We're like off-roading in a <laughs> fucking another state. But so <laughs> but, uh, basically you're saying like,
0: once you get to the point where it's an electric car, um the cost of maintenance and wear and tear is so low because it's it's not an a uh, you know internal combustion engine with all the associated problems and there's not a human behind the wheel that needs to be paid then yeah i guess you know going from central jersey if to new look, york city could be 5 or 6 dollars or something like that
1: if you look at gdp so actually if you go to that debt clock page usdebtclock.org right mm-hmm. um and you look uh, and they have like our top level debt and you know uh, all these Things, yeah. So U.S. domestic product since two th- since the year two thousand uh, has increased hundred and fifteen percent. So mm-hmm. in uh, the last seventeen years, it it's basically more than doubled, right? Okay, which is phenomenal, yeah. and I think like it will increase at such a rate, uh, like, and as long as that outpaces the debt that we incur.
0: So basically, to put it all in a nutshell, your position on how much we should worry about the debt is inherently linked to your faith in our country's ability to continue its upward trend in productivity, mm, essentially. Yes. And if, if that does I, I stagnate, that, then we're in trouble with regards to the so debt. And
1: I so th- I guess that's the crux of it is that um, it can you know, and like if it can like if it can fail, it will fail is kinda of like the the thought process. So the fact that it isn't now is a great thing, you know, and, and stock markets yeah. at all times highs and blah blah blah. But uh we we obviously need to do things like balance the budget and 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 flip the trends from acquiring more debt. It's not like acquire all the debt, everything's great, like we gonna hit like seventy trillion dollars. I think it's um It's not Mm. urgent now, but it could be urgent in the future.
0: So we'll we'll put it this way. Uh, If you're if you're 17, we need you to go become an engineer. (laughs) Mm. Yes, (laughs) because if we're all English majors, then uh, we're not going to be building crazy autonomous car networks or whatever. The next thing we need to keep the productivity graph going up into the right (laughs) and in which case the debt comes due and the house of cards comes falling down. That's that's the pessimistic picture of it. How long can we can we run on the hamster wheel and keep increasing our speed before something gives? Peak oil, For, economic forever. trends, everyone loses their job because of self-driving cars. What well, you know, but I guess, yeah. So if we understand it correctly, then one big hit to economic productivity, whatever it may be, maybe it's you know uh it, it decreased ability point. to extract oil, which most of our economy is based on. It could be um, huge swaths of the population losing the ability to find meaningful meaningful employment due to automation. It could be anything. Mm. That could be the tipping point that starts yes. the whole domino line tumbling with regards to trust in the debt.
1: Scary. I, I completely <laughs> agree. And so, so, yeah, so I want to like uh, soberly as I, as I wrap my beer up, you know, or, or very soberingly, <laughs> uh-huh. not soberly, uh, just kind of like go through a bit more of those concerns because I think they are absolutely valid, okay, you know, and worth considering, but perhaps not as dramatic as it is often painted, especially when you go to a lot of these like partisan political things. Uh, they're, they're very inflaming conversations, yeah. um, which isn't necessarily productive. So, and one of the things that uh, – really sticks with me is everyone's like, well, we, we have to bring Donald Trump in to become president because he's a businessman and we need to run the US government like a business. You know, and, and I, I guess implying that the, you know, businesses don't acquire debt or they're inherently profitable, <laughs> I'm which I'm a business
0: owner and let me tell you how great it would be if I could just magically print money that I essentially <laughs> never had to pay back. That'd be yes. great,
1: <laughs> but that said, uh, I think that statement is just generally false. Yeah, um, businesses have enormous amounts of debt, and I think the best uh, or, or like a good analogy is like say you're toiling in your garage and you came up with it with the solution to teleportation, right? Like you 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 figured it out but you just don't have enough money to build the you know the teleportation machine in New York and London to teleport people so you're going to go and you're going to print t-shirts you're going to create teleportationmachine.org and write a bunch of blog posts and you know monetize it with Betterment or something and then in 20 years you'll have enough money to build your teleportation machine you could do it that way or you could just take out a loan yeah, build them and then be like a super billionaire. Yeah. And that's essentially what businesses do is when they've determined that they have an idea or something that will generate revenue, you know, they borrow to achieve that. Yeah. And the US government is similar. In in boom times, if you look at our budget, we, we often run a surplus. And when we have recessions or recovering from recessions, we run deficits to help stimulate the economy. And so um we do run it like a business would. Right.
0: Well, there you go. I guess we don't need a businessman. We've been doing it that way already. <laughs> uh, I'm what, a businessman. Yeah. I am a businessman. Last thing that I wanted to bring up is one common question or one common point that some people bring up, which is, why don't we just cancel the debt? Just write a law that says no more debt because the debt's in US dollars, right? <laughs> why don't we just hmm. do that? So two reasons. Well, I guess- a couple of reasons more than maybe more than two reasons. The first one is Congress is constitutionally obligated to pay the debt. Uh, Mm. The 14th amendment has a section that basically says, uh, I guess it actually says the validity of the public debt, the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services and suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned, which Mm. basically the courts have come to interpret that to mean the government is liable to pay its debt. Plain and simple, constitutionally obligated. Uh, The reason it says in there for services and suppressing insurrection or rebellion is because the government had to borrow a lot of money to fight the civil war. And a lot of people were worried they wouldn't be able to pay it back. So it was essentially written as a way to kind of quell the fears uh, created by that. Now, the only way out is number one for the government to become financially insolvent, which would bring a whole host of other problems or two, to literally write a constitutional amendment that would to say essentially do the same thing uh, as the one that canceled prohibition. Like, oh, actually, we don't have to, bro. But I think <laughs> that would have a lot of problems in itself. It would cause a lot of problems with the trust that everyone external to the government has in the government, because I don't know about you, but. If I'm going to loan money to somebody uh, and then they go ahead and like pass a rule in their business where they no longer have to pay their debts, I'm going to be like, uh, what the heck, man? I am i don't know yep. what I'm going to do, but it's it's definitely not going to be like sitting back and just saying, that's cool. It's totally cool if you just rewrite the rules and reneg on our agreement. That's fine. So they are basically obligated to pay the debt. And the way they do that is by operating this giant flywheel of new debt creation. So we're essentially just shifting the debt around while ever increasing it due to new interest that is generated and new spending that we do. Um, And as long as, as you said, Andrew, as long as we can keep the productivity graph up until the right by building crazy machine learning car networks, uh, we're good to go. I,
1: I just want to say, I feel like any good debt discussion isn't truly complete without China. China. Right? Because China is, you know, I don't know. They're like, they're our puppet master. I don't know. Like, there's a, there's a lot of, like, conspiracy theories going out there. And um, I think just a, a few things need to be really clear. Because, like, people are like, well, what? You know, China now has, like, a meaningful amount of control over us. Or, you know, they can call the debt due and screw us over. Um, one. When you buy a, a, when you take a loan out, a mortgage, whatever, the bank can't, you can't just like come to you on year 10 of your 30-year mortgage and be like, yo, Thomas, like we want everything today. Like that's just not how it works. So it just doesn't work like that. So they they can't call the debt due. And then second, they're like, oh, well, they have like a meaningful, meaningful influence over us. You know, they can just control what we do because they own so much of our debt um, you know, and, and perhaps this can manifest in them threatening to sell it all or I don't know. Yeah. I, I actually don't even – because it doesn't really make sense to me. But let's imagine if they did sell it all, they would screw themselves over so hardcore because if you were to uh, drop 5.5% of the treasuries that are out there on the open market, it would essentially crater the value of treasuries because yep. there's like an influx – of supply and not enough demand. And so if China has $1.15 trillion today, that's a market value. And if they try and sell it all, they're not going to get nearly that much out of it. Yeah. So they would have to... And, and anyways, the pennies on the still dollar. have the... or,
0: or, or pennies exactly. on the yuan? Is that what they use? Yeah. Penny. <laughs> they don't, I'm sure it's not even the, pennies. <laughs>
1: yen? I don't, I, don't, I don't think they use
0: yen. Japan uses yen.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think
0: they use but, yuan. Uh, but now and I have anyways, to
1: look. Regardless, even if they yeah. sold it all, the the price that treasuries are trading at. Oh, is, the renminbi
0: I mean, is the official mm-hmm. unit and the yuan is the basic unit of the renminbi. So it would be yuans on the renminbi. And I'm probably pronouncing that wrong.
1: <laughs> the only thing that the US government cares about, they don't care about the price to buy these treasury bills. They care about the interest rate. And the interest rate is determined by new issuances. It's issued. This is the rate. That's it. It hasn't like va- It's not like, I mean, you could get in uh, a variable mortgage, but yeah. that's not how treasury bills work. Um, so also just a moot point. And
0: the last thing, obviously we we can't go into too much detail about this without getting into speculation because neither of us are knowledgeable. And a lot of it is probably very shadowy objectively, but there are, money is intrinsically linked at a governmental level to geopolitical things. So, you know, the most, uh, the most egregious example here is we have more guns (laughs) than China does. And I'm not saying that, you know, we're just going to be like, we'll go to war with you if you sell our, our, our treasury bonds, but money is intrinsically linked to power and it's intrinsically linked to many other things like, who owns what land and all kinds of stuff like that. So anytime you think about like another country doing something to screw us over, like it's not literally just, Oh, they can just click a button and sell the treasury bonds and mess with us. There would be a lot of repercussions in other areas. Uh, And this isn't listen, geopolitics matter. So (laughs) we can't really go too much into that, but it's more complicated than just, they're going to screw us because they hold a bunch of our debt and they don't even hold that much of our debt. Anyway, it's 5%. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's a lot,
1: it's a lot lot of money, money,
0: but. but it isn't like they have the majority of it. The fed has the majority of it. And then like institutional investors and American citizens hold more. So,
1: so I, I heard a really good, um, way to describe, what, what $20 trillion is. Okay. So so imagine if you went to Germany um, and you went to every single town and in every single town you went into every single store and you bought every single item on the shelf in all of Germany. That, you, that wouldn't be worth 20 trillion. But if you did that for all of Europe, into every single town, on every single store, bought every single item, that would be a, about worth $20 trillion. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, I'm gonna so buy every <laughs> single thing for sale and all every of consumer Europe.
0: good available in Europe. It's mine. I'll take it. <laughs> One of everything, please. <laughs> it's gonna get you a lot it of burratas, good. a lot of bratwursts, all kinds of good stuff, mm. dude. Have you ever had burrata?
1: <laughs> oh my god, the cheese! So oh my god! Oh my god, dude! You gotta have burrata with um, black truffles, a little bit of honey, and like some like pestoey sauce on yeah. crusty bread. Yeah, uh, dude. Their mind will blow up. So I
0: went to this Italian restaurant and I mean, any of our listeners who live in Denver, it's called Angelo's and oh my gosh, it's it's my favorite restaurant now, at least in Denver. Mm. Probably not in the world, but in Denver. And I'm trying to figure out what they put on it. It's like the burrata is the cheese thing, but then there's like these little flecks of something on there that tastes like kind of salty, but not like just like salt. And I'm trying to figure mm. out what they are. I don't know if it's like truffle salt or some weird mm. fancy thing. At Whole Foods, you can buy regular Burrata and you can buy Burrata with black truffles. And I haven't bought those yet, but I'm thinking maybe that's it. I don't know. I thought
1: you were fancy Thomas.
0: I am fancy. <laughs> I'm so fancy. <laughs> I don't know the rest of the lyrics to that song. Anyway, uh, all of what we talked about minus the booze talk. And uh, maybe the booze talk—I don't know. Sometimes our our writer will throw stuff about our booze into our show notes. But <laughs> all the important stuff about debt, the things that will actually educate you, are at our show notes. Uh, so, listenmoneymatters.com slash show is where you can go in a web browser and find them. And if you are listening to this in a podcasting app like Apple's Apple Podcasts or anything on Android. Uh, There's probably some way to bring up the show notes right within your app. If it is Apple podcasts, I think you can just tap on our, our album artwork. Um, If it's like pocket casts, you can swipe whatever it is. I'll let you figure it out, but we do put all the show notes right there. So you can just check them out right there. If you want to, we will have all the links, all the YouTube videos that we watched in order to prep for this episode. If you want to go deeper on this topic, that is where you can go to do so. Uh, also you can find our toolbox of resources like budgeting tools, investing tools, books that we recommend over at our toolbox, uh com slash toolbox. And if you want to support the show, one great way to do it is to give us a review on Apple Podcasts and rating that helps to bump the show up the rankings and just lets us know what we're doing right and what we can improve on. So, as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you in next week's episode.
1: Later, dude. Later, man.